0: Let me ask you a question. Who are you? How would you describe yourself to someone else? This last week we had a leadership meeting. And so I gave our leadership team a little exercise. And I said, would you just please write down on paper how you would describe yourself to somebody else and then read it to the rest of the group? I was tricking them. I knew all of them, but I wanted those papers when they were done so that I could tell you what they said about themselves. There was mutiny on the ship, but they graciously gave them to me, and so I'm going to read them to you, and I'm not even going to tell you who they're from, but you will know them by their description of themselves. If you don't know who they are, well maybe you might want to get to know your leadership team so you can find out which of these people they are. So here I'm going to start. I'm 29 and I've been a Christ follower since I was 13. I'm an auto body technician. I've been married for 11 years and have three uh, three boys, four, six, and almost one. I have served as treasurer and elder at WRCC for five years and have been attending for almost 10 years. I love tech stuff. Anything outdoors with my family, especially golf. You already know who that is. I have been a part of this church since, uh, since 1998. In the last 18 years, God has taken me for quite a ride. I'm a Wyoming native and have lived in Lander since 1967. Old guy. I love the outdoors, especially the Wind Rivers. I have been blessed with a spectacular wife and four wonderful children. I love WRCC. It's people, community, and spiritual leading. The next one. I am broken, but moving. I am incapable, but hoping. I feel weak, but have power. I am blind, but I see. I am an agent of change met with resistance. And I love, but not perfectly. Here's the next one. I am a husband and father of two, a son and a daughter. I am 47 and have lived in Lander since 2002. I work as a library media specialist. I have been a Christ follower since 1997 and have endeavored to grow in my relationship with him ever since. I enjoy reading and writing, spending time with my family and friends, and participating in other activities. I have been a member of WRCC since 2009. The next one. I am a daughter of Christ. I am a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister, an aunt, and soon to be grandmother. I am a PTA waitress and bartender. I am support- I am a supportive mom and love my children very much. I love my friends and love to laugh. I'm a crier. Cry at everything, happy or sad. Love photo photographs. Love big, loud, fun, family and friend get-togethers. And I love to cook. I love my husband. He's my lobster. I don't know what that means, but it's Valentine's Day. I love that my husband has become a devoted Christ follower, and I am hopeful for the future and for my family. Here's the next one. I'm a believer of Jesus Christ. I'm a husband and a father of four. I have two living parents who have been married for 43 years and have been wonderful examples of marriage and uh, being Jesus followers for my life. I have a brother who is an awesome man of God and has seven children who are are learning about Jesus. Busy man. I love to hunt, fish, camp, carry and shoot guns and drive my four-wheeler. I love people and try to aid them in overcoming uh, mental health issues and addiction issues. And I get paid to do it. I have two living grandparents who are ninety and ninety-three years old. My grandmother taught me to fish, and my fe- grandfather taught me to pray. Here's the last one. I've been married to the same woman for twenty-two years and have two sons. I work as a family nurse practitioner and also serve as clinic clinical service administrator. I serve on a committee. I serve as committee chair for the local Boy Scout troop fifty-two. I like to do outdoor activities of all kinds. That's your leadership team. I left John out because the temptation when I was going to put Pastor John's name in there was, you know, have him in a Superman cape and, you know, just this. And so I just kind of thought, ah, he's okay if I neglect him. I didn't abuse him this time. I just neglected him. You know, people often use what they do, their occupation, to describe who they are. They use their family as who I am. Uh, they might use geographical location or where they've come from or family trees. They'll even use friends as a way to identify who they are. And I want you to know something. There's nothing wrong with any of that. That, that helps people to get to know who we are. But in the passage that we're stu- studying, Paul tells us exactly who we are. we're going to be in Col- Colossians chapter three and we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 but we're just going to focus right now on verse 12. And as as we get into this you're going to notice the first three words Paul says put on. Now that's a contrast to what he talked about what we talked about last week in, in verses 5 through 11 where he said, told us to kill, certain attitudes and behaviors in our life and to put off attitudes and behaviors. And so now he's, he's gone from that negative positive, it's a negative positive, we're supposed to put that stuff off because that's a good thing to do, and he now steps into the words of encouragement for us that we are to put on something. He has shifted his, his thought process. And so before we get to putting on the things that he tells us to put on, there are some things that we need to take a look at that are really important. We, as you look at it, the, the next couple of um, phrases are really important because he tells us that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And why is it important for us to know who we are before we put anything on? Well, if we don't get a grasp of, of who we are in God and how God views us, it really becomes difficult for us to step into the virtues that He supplies to us through His Holy Spirit. So we need to know who we are before we put on the garment. And so, here, let's go through it. He says, first, we are God's chosen ones. Meaning, regardless of how you think you came to faith, you may be, think, you may be thinking in your mind that through your, your life, you had been searching for God your whole life, and you finally found God. Well, that's not what it just said right here. It said He chose you. In other words, He put a call out to you and said, Come to Me. Come and spend time with Me. Come to get to know Me. I want you to spend time with Me. I want you to know My heart. I want you to know how I feel. So come and spend time with Me. He chose you. The God of the universe said to you, Come to Me. And all you did was go like, Alright, I'm going to come. But you may not have felt like it was actually God calling you, but it was. He chose you above other people. Other people have said no. You said yes. And so now you stand as a son or daughter of the living God. I mean, if there's anything that should bring great encouragement to our hearts and our lives is the simple fact that God looked at you and said I want you. I choose you. I want you to be mine. In in Deuteronomy 7, we get this idea of how God has chosen ones. Because in, in the Old Testament, as you read through it, you'll notice that God often refers to Israel as my chosen ones. And so in Deuteronomy 7, it says this, "...it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people." But it is because the Lord loves you. He chose you because He loves you. I mean, isn't that kind of the message of Valentine's Day? I hate saying that. Oh, Valentine's Day. Okay, I got. I got to get this off my chest. I understand all the romance and all the gushy stuff that goes along with Valentine's Day. And I, by the way. I'm a great propon- proponent of you doing that all the time, and so it just kind of casts my shorts when the the people out there, whoever they are, are telling you you got to go buy a new car for your wife if you're really going to show her you love her. I'm just like, oh come on now, come on get, let me do it my. Don't tell me when I have to. I guess it's a little bit of rebelliousness in me, but don't tell me when I have to do that because. God didn't tell us when we had to love Him. He said, love me all the time, as we heard earlier, with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. What's the second greatest one? To love our neighbors ourselves, the same way we love God. Your, your closest neighbor would be the person that you, you know, call your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend. So, anyway, okay, I got that out of my system. I'll probably be in trouble when I get home, though. no I would be in more trouble believe me anyway let's move on knowing that God's affections are set towards us gives us security in our relationship with him he set his affections on us first and after all if God's for us then who can be against us the next thing that he says the second thing is that he calls us holy. Holy. How many of you think of yourselves as being a holy person? Oh, there we go. And there's the truth, right? You want to know? Here's a lady who has walked with God for how many years? Nineteen sixty-three.
1: Since
0: nineteen sixty-three. She knows what it means to be holy. Now, you may be going like I don't know what that means. I don't know what it looks like. But what I want you to understand is the reason that Paul says that God sees us as holy is because that's what He wants us to be. And, And we need to understand the holiness of God in us and that we're to be holy because when we do that, it transforms the way that we not only think about ourselves, but the way that we interact with God. Everyone who comes to faith through Christ, is immediately holy. There's a, a hint of this in the Old Testament of what was going to happen when the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, as we know Jesus, came. Because the Old Testament law required that the blood of a pure, innocent, spotless, blameless animal should be killed for your sins. They would take this little lamb that was perfect and they would cut its throat, and they'd gather the blood, and then they'd sprinkle that blood, and what would that blood do? It would cover your sin. That's all it did was cover it. It never removed it. It never took it away. All it was was a simple covering, but your sin was still there. And your sin was still an abomination unto God. And so what happens is the holiness of God was too, too hard for us to live on our own we couldn't be holy on our own account even with all the blood that could be spilt we would never be holy it was impossible to live up to that holiness then Jesus came and lived a perfect life he never sinned and no deceit was found him Jesus then gave himself up as a sacrifice for our sin not to cover our sin but to radically remove it from our lives now it, it's it's just crazy because it's this sacrifice that in Hebrews 10 that it talks about, and it talks about Jesus' obedience to that. And it says, by that will, His will to be obedience we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus once and for all. Sanctified. You go, wait, that doesn't mean holiness. Well, let me go on to First Thessalonians 5.23 because it says, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body keep blame, be kept blameless until at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can get confused with the word like sanctify because we read it when we go through the Bible. We come across these words that Jesus sanctified us but a lot of times we don't understand what that means. And So I want to help you understand when you're reading the Bible what some of these words mean. And So when it says sanctify... What it means is, is that Jesus, by his blood, in that process, made you holy. It's by the blood of Jesus that you're holy. All right, so I've muddied the waters a little bit. Let's see if I can bring some clarity to it. Uh, imagine that you have kind of a see-through umbrella. It, it doesn't block your view out, but it blocks out the UV rays. And so you can look through it as you hold this big umbrella as you're playing golf, because you want to see if a ball's coming to hit you in the head. So you got the and you can see. Now you take that umbrella and you soak it in in Jesus' blood. I want you to get that. Because when you came to Christ, God made this promise to you and to me, to all who would come to Christ that He was going to reside, live with us through The Holy Spirit. So when you came to Christ, He deposited the Holy Spirit into your life. Now here's the crazy thing. You can't see Him. But you know He's there. You know He's there because when you sin, He pokes you right here. And when you're in trouble, He says, go this way. And when you're distressed, He brings comfort. And when you're worn out, He gives you rest. He's always there. And so you've got the Holy Spirit who goes with you everywhere where you go. The the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, lives in you and me. And what he carries is that umbrella now soaked in blood, and he pops it over us. And so the Father, when he looks at us, he's not just looking at us. He's looking at us through the blood of Christ, which is holiness. And so what that means to us is that even though our character isn't holy, our status is. You are going to be in a position where you will fail. You will continue to be tempted. You're you're going to do stuff that you know is against God and you're going to be like, I can't believe it. How could I do this? I'm a child of God. But as you continue to trust God, as you continue to study His Word, you grow more sensitive... To who he is and what he's doing in your life, and, and you see sin more clearly as you draw nearer to God. And when your character sins, it sins. It doesn't change your status with God. Your status status is you're positionally perfect, but you're experientially imperfect. Your spiritually your status is that you're. Your position with God is perfect, holy. But the way you live is imperfect and unholy. And you know what the great news is about that? Even though you screw up, even though you make mistakes, even though you do some things that you you know are totally against what God has for you, the best for you, even though you do that, He still sees you as holy. Your mess-ups don't remove God from your life. He's not going anywhere. He's going to be there every day. He's going to love you deeply every day. Because why? Because you're holy. He chose you, and then He made you holy. And then the third thing that, he's, that Paul tells us is that there's, we've got this whole thing of being beloved. It's that love that God gives to us. Now, once again... It must be God's sovereign will that we're talking about love on Valentine's Day. (sighs) All right. So I want you to think about the person that you love the most, whoever that is. And then I want you to think of that relationship you have with that person. Like when you were in junior high and it was Valentine's week, and that little person that you had this little puppy love crush on, you wrote Valentine's cards and you put all the mushiest, gushy kind of nonsense you could put in there to make that person think that you were really special and that they're really special too. And that's what you wanted to do. And so you have this little puppy love thing going on. And, and you know, you share Valentine's and you, you get all twitterpated when you hold hands and and you're thinking, maybe I'm even going to get a little kiss or something like that. And, and so your whole world is just upside down. You've got butterflies whenever you see them. You can't, you can't think straight. You can't eat. And, and you forget things like, you know, you left your mom at the grocery store or something. And, and you just kind of messed up because you're so in love with this person. And it's puppy love. Now, we all know what junior high puppy love is about. It's like it's here today and gone tomorrow, right? It's like the flowers of the field. They'll pop up and they'll bloom and then they'll die. And that's what puppy love is. But but get this, to the puppy is still love, right? And, and that's, when you compare the love that God has for us, Our that's our comprehension of it. We can't really comprehend the depth of God's love because we're, We're humans, and we have this flawed understanding of love. But God's love, God's love is so immense. It's so great. It's so marvelous. I mean, He took His son and sent Him to earth out of God's love so that He would die in our place, so that His blood would be shed for us, so that we would experience the depth of God's love in our life. And it's unbelievable you'll spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out. And you're not going to really get it until you step across from this life into the next and you see Jesus and the Father at one time and all of a sudden you're going to go, oh, that's what it is. So who are you? You are holy, Children, chosen by God because of His great love for you. Paul says that we are to put on like a garment the wardrobe of the saints. So let's move on. And, and, he, and we're still in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen holy ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. We're going to stop there. The first piece of virtuous clothing Paul says we are to put on is a compassionate heart. Now, in the original text, when, when, when they were writing this in the Greek and Paul wrote this, we don't get the full implication of it because we don't understand the nuances of the word. But what it's really talking about when it talks about this compassion is it's a stomach or a gut thing. That's where it originates. You, you know what I mean. Like, you get a gut feeling about somebody or about something. Men, you particularly understand this when you walk in the house and you take one look at your wife and your gut tells you to run back to the car and <laughs> go home, go somewhere else. That's what it's talking about, where that feeling originates from. We have those gut feelings. You know, when you get into a a uh, conversation later on today because you didn't pick up any flowers, chocolates, or a card. Come see me. I'm in the same boat. And you've got a gut feeling before you leave here that you'd better do something. That's where compassion, what this compassionate thing comes from out of our lives. It, it really would probably be better to say it tender-hearted mercies would be a, a really good translation of that. In the ancient Greek and Roman world, there was no such thing as mercy, no compassion. The sick, the aged were discarded. The mentally ill were subject to inhumanities. The early church, though, they ushered in compassion because they made it a part of who they were, because they understood That they had compassion from God. And everything that has been done for the aged, the sick, the weak in body and mind, for children, for women, has been under, has been done under the inspiration of the community of Christ followers. They're the ones that put orphanages together. They're the ones that put hospitals together. They're the ones that have, have found, um, Jobs for the jobless. They're the ones who have fed the poor. They are the ones who have started to work in reaching out and helping those who are destitute because of the compassion that Christ gives to them. The sad thing is, is the church took that and handed that responsibility off to the government. And look what they've done to it. They've made a mess of it. Compassionate hearts is who we are in Christ. If we're new creatures in Christ, then we have to be compassionate people. The second item of clothing is simply kindness. Put on as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness. Kindness does not happen naturally in in human relationships. The human personality naturally descends into harshness in word and deed kindness is a fruit of the spirit it's one of the fruit of the spirit found in galatians 5 which indicates that in really for us to express kindness the way that it is stated here takes the empowering work of the holy spirit in our life to be kind to other people we all have the choice it's God's desire that we would treat each other with kindness through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we all have a choice when it comes to other people, and sometimes we treat them kind, and in other times we don't. Sometimes we we take what we call kindness, and we're in a in a gathering something like this, and we will say something about somebody else, and uh, it's not kind, but we try to guise it under the umbrella. Of being funny. But when it's at the expense of somebody else's um, character, when it's hurtful, it's not kind. It, it, it is the most unloving thing you can do. Being, cho- being a chosen child of God who's experienced the loving kindness of our Father, we need to be kind one to another. The third garment that we are to don. don- is that of humility. A word that is misinterpreted by most people. We have compassionate heart, kindness, and then humility. Humility is the quiet strength that comes not from who we are, but who God made us to be. Humility is the absence of self-exaltation. And God wants us to have nothing to do with arrogant pride and false humility. Humility is knowing who you are in Christ. And when you are in Christ, then you reflect who Christ is in your life. And what did Christ come to do on this earth? Not to be served, but to serve. He was a servant leader. And in humility, you learn how to become a servant leader. How you can serve other people without ever feeling less than anything. You are more than something. And so this humility that God has for us, He loves those who have a humble heart. And He gives them reward. Isaiah 57 says, The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. If you wanted to see the opposite of humility, all you had to do was pluck on your television 4 o'clock last week and watch a football game. There's two leaders, one for each team. They're called quarterbacks. Neither one of them had a very good game. But one of them was a very humble man, even in his victory. And he gave credit where credit is due. The other one, from the Panthers,
1: The losing one
0: had no humility even in defeat. I watched him throughout the year. One of the reasons why I didn't appreciate him as a person is because he was arrogant and prideful. Full of arrogance. And and in, in the defeat, You saw that arrogance come out in that he pouted like a junior high boy. Shame on him. God has a a heart for those who are humble. Matter of fact, James 4 quoted out of the Old Testament says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Destruction comes from the proud person. I'm not a real Broncos fan, but you know what? For Jamie's sake, it was shown on Sunday last week. Right, Jamie? You've been waiting since 1967.
1: <laughs>
0: the humble knows it is only by the grace of God that he has anything. He, know God, he knows God provides a job, gives him a home, bluffs him with a family, puts him in a faith community that loves him, has been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The person who wears the garment of humility knows who God is, knows who man is, and knows who he or she is, chosen by God, holy and beloved. The fourth item that we are to clothe ourselves with is meekness or gentleness. Meekness um, is another misunderstanding. There's an author by the name of J. Upton Dixon, who created a little group for submissive people and they are called, this group's name is doormats. And doormats stands for dependent organization of really meek and timid souls, if there are no objections. Their motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody else. That is the misconception of a lot of people For they think that meekness and weakness, or meekness and gentleness, is weakness, but it couldn't be anything further from the truth. There is there's this gentleness and meekness in this world, but behind the gentleness is a steel-like strength. For the supreme character of the meek man or woman is that he or she understands and are under perfect control. Those wearing the true garment of gentleness are immensely powerful people for they are controlled by the Spirit of God at all times. The final garment from the celestial closet is patience, or long-suffering in the face of insult or injury. This is another fruit of the Spirit, and it means more than enduring, enduring difficulties or passive registration to the resignation to the circumstances. It is based on the lively, outgoing faith in God and is to be exercised toward everyone. Paul gave this admonition to us in First Thessalonians 5. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. And when he says be patient with everyone, he's just not referring to those who are part of our local church family. He's talking about people outside of the church family who are sitting in the middle of the street with their turn signal on and can't determine whether they really want to turn or not. (laughs) Patience means you don't lean on the horn and once again hurl insults at your windshield. It means you go out of your car and you ask them if they're okay and if they need help moving their car. That's patience. Patience isn't something that we have with us all the time. When we need patience, the fruit of the Spirit, that's when we ask God to make us more patient than we normally are. I've heard a lot of you say, I made a big mistake this last week. I prayed and asked God for patience and then the kids went crazy. Or my, my spouse was a nut job or whatever it is. And, and we attribute that we think that because we're asking for patience, God's going to bring all the testing in the world against this so that our patients are going to be frazzled and at the end of it, we'll recognize that we're a very impatient bunch of people. But that's, that's not the context or the understanding of patience in the Scripture. It's calling on it when I need it the most. When I'm about ready to say something to my wife, whom I have loved for 32 years, maybe even a little bit longer than that because we were engaged in dating, but I really did love her back then. It was puppy love. But it's, it's at that moment when instead of getting angry and getting frustrated with her, I'm saying, God, I just need patience right now to understand this creature woman that you have given to me, which is driving me crazy. I need patience. Help me. And that's when God steps up and supplies for us all that we need. Now, all these garments that Paul is telling us to uh, be put on can be worn Only in community with others. If you're a hermit living up in the woods by yourself, you have no need of patience. It's living it out in relationship. We become better Christ followers in community because I'm going to rub you the wrong way and you're going to rub me the wrong way. And Proverbs calls that iron sharpening iron. So one man sharpens another. We do it in community. We, we bristle up against each other. We, we become better with all these virtues that Paul's telling us about in our families and among our friends, with our co-workers, in small groups. And particularly as we gather and do things together. Because you only know each other for a short time on a Sunday morning. But the more time you spend with each other, you're going to go like, they irritate me to know him. I'd like to shoot them right now. But that's God's intention of bringing us together, is that we would help each other to live these things out, to encourage them in each other's lives. The very things that we think are keeping us from putting on the garments are the very things that make it possible for us to wear them. As Paul said, he said, put them on. It's a command, and it's in the present imperative meaning that we are to put them on and keep on putting them on. It's a continual act. You don't just put it on. I mean, all right. You don't wear the same underwear for your whole life. You put on new ones, clean ones, right? And so it's the same idea. You don't just slip these garments on and just wear them and go like it's all good. No, because they're going to fall off because we're sinful human beings and we just mess everything up. And so Paul's saying, keep putting them on. Put them on every day. It's like take your cross up daily to follow Jesus. Kill your old nature and live in the new nature. It's all these things we have to do daily and putting these virtues on is the same exact thing He wants us to do. Let's move on to Colossians 13. I just finished my introduction. I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with you guys today. Okay, Colossians 3.13. It goes... The first part of it was with the last section. It says, Bearing with one another, and if someone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Now, Paul, Paul hits this admonition to forgive other people. And I'm telling you right now, it is a hard pill to swallow because when it comes to forgiveness and the definition of forgiveness and what Jesus and what God laid out for us in Scripture, we don't want any part of it. Because there's a part of us that says, if I forgive that person, that means I'm not going to get my pound of flesh out of them. If I forgive that person, I may not get what I have coming to me. If I forgive that person, it means that they get off scot-free and they don't have to understand that I know they were wrong and I get to tell them they were wrong. Whenever you forgive somebody, if it doesn't cost you something, then it's not forgiveness. It's something else that you've made up. A top wash. It has to cost you something. Let me put it to you in terms that you understand. If you had Pastor John come over to your house, and normally he's a very graceful man, but he tripped on the carpet in your house, and he knocked over that antique lamp that your great-grandmother gave you, and it broke on the floor, you could look at Pastor John, and he'd go, Oh, my goodness, I'm sorry. How much does that cost? And you would say $50,000. And he'd go, Oh, I'm really sorry about that. And if you say, it's okay, I forgive you, what you're saying is, I'm going to incur the cost for that lamp, and you owe nothing for it. I love you. Go in peace. Don't worry about the lamp. I've got it covered. That's what forgiveness is all about, is I incur the debt of whatever just happened when I forgive somebody. When I forgive you, I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. I'm not going to beat you up with it anymore. I'm not going to let it interfere with my relationship with God and with other people. And when you don't forgive other people, it always interferes with your relationship with God. We know that because... Um, I know I'm so... Oh, Matthew uh, 6, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus said this. He says... If you forgive those who sin against you, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. Now, I'm telling you right now, you can try and massage that all you want, not to make it sound like you have to forgive somebody, but I'm telling you, Jesus made it absolutely clear that if you don't forgive them, you're not going to be forgiven. And I tell you right now, I would not want to be in those shoes when I came to meet the Father face to face. I know. Listen, I, I know a lot of you have gone through some, some really bad stuff in your life. You've had people who have abused you physically and mentally. There are some that have been abused sexually. There are people who have been ripped off by people and lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. There has been all kinds of things that have taken place in your life and God says, that you need to forgive those people. I'm not saying it's easy to do. What I'm telling you is, it's the most difficult thing to do. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the work of God in our lives, the Bible asks us a question, is there anything too difficult for God? No. Nothing is impossible with God. And so when God says to you, you need to forgive this person, you go, and I can't do it. He says, I know you can't. That's why I'm here to help you. I'm going to help you forgive. And you can forgive from a distance. They don't have to come and ask you for an apology. Because they may never come and do that. Because they may be either not inside the family of God where the Spirit of God is working on them. Or if they are inside the family of God, they are saying no to God and saying, you need to go and apologize to that person. And they keep putting, putting this thing off. And that's on them. That's not on you. But when you have an unforgiving spirit... It, it's in essence you are taking rat poison, and you're going to drink it so that you can kill that person over there who doesn't even know you exist at this minute, and all you're doing is killing yourself. I can't. I can't stress how important forgiveness is. I just. I, I recently had to go and help a church who was in some really, in the deep weeds because there was some stuff going on in the church that really had the potential to rip it apart. And myself and another pastor from up north, we made the travel down to that church, and we met with the pastor, and we met with some of the elders, and we met with the people that were involved in this tragedy going on in the church. And you know, the most amazing thing to me, as I sat there and I interviewed for eight hours, eight hours of interview, what I heard from people was, I was really angry, I'm really mad, I'm I'm broken, I'm hurting, I, I can't believe the betrayal. And you hear all of the junk and the garbage that comes out of their mouths. And at the end of their story they say, but God has forgiven me of so much, how can I not forgive this person? And I have forgiven them from my heart. That's the power of Christ at work in you. Verse 14 says, Above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This this whole thing, I'm going back to this love thing. It It, it is just inconceivable to me that we talk that we can do all these things And yet we'll have conversations with other people in regards to the family of God. And the words that we speak about them are unloving. I don't get it. And these virtues, these garments that Paul says we're supposed to put on, you can put some of them on and not have love. But it is impossible to have love and not have all of these garments because love, is a grace that binds all these other graces together. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that three things are going to remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. The Bible says that if you, in 1 Corinthians 13, it also says that if you have the faith to move mountains and you don't have love, it's worth nothing. If you sacrifice your body for thousands of other people but you don't do it out of love, you don't have love for others, it's a worthless sacrifice. Love is the most important aspect and key to our lives in harmony with God and with other people. And and this love is that he's talking about here is a belt that we bind all the rest of those virtues together with and hold them in place. Verse 15. I'm just cruising right along. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which you need indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. The peace of of Christ is different than any other kind of peace that we'll ever know or comprehend or have in our lives. In John 14, as Jesus was just about ready to go to the cross, He was with His disciples at the last meal. He said, Peace I need with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And what you want to notice in that is that Jesus isn't saying, I've made a deposit over here in the bank where you withdraw my peace. He's saying it's my own personal peace in my life and I am going to take my peace and I am going to give it directly to you. It's Jesus' personal peace that he's pouring into our lives and that's why it's so different than anything else you'll ever experience. I've sat through some of the harshest elder and board meetings when I was in my last church church and yet, in the middle of all the, the stuff that was being said and the things that were being done, the peace of Christ reigned and ruled in my heart. And I knew God wouldn't leave me or, or, or forsake me at my moments of need. And He overwhelmed me with this, this peace that covered up the inner turmoil and helped me to reign over it in Christ. This peace that Jesus is talking about giving to us, and this peace that Paul's talking about, that's in Christ Jesus, becomes our personal uh, umpire in our life. What's the job of the umpire? The, the job of the umpire is to call strikes and foul balls, and when a person's out. And that's what peace does in our life. When we're going out of bounds with what we're saying or with what we're doing, God's going to remove that peace from us, and we're going to know it right away. But as we live within the confines of what God's called us to live in, and by the way, they're wide, there's a lot of room in there for us to operate. We live under Christ's peace because it rules our lives. Verse 16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thanksgiving in your heart. How does the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? Well, the only way that's possible is to make it a part of your daily life. What's the Word of Christ? It's the entire Word of God. And, and you can't let it dwell in your life richly if it's never been present. It has to reside. It has to find a home in order for it to bring the richness into our lives. And I know that as you read the Word of God and as you're studying it, there are passages that are really difficult and hard to understand. But I'm going to tell you this, that if you put those away and you dwell on the ones that you understand, there is a richness from the Holy Spirit that's going to fill your life. And and as the Word dwells in your heart, it needs to do two things. It first of all needs to bring comfort to your life. And the second thing it needs to do is it needs to trouble your life because It'll bring comfort to know that God is using His word to encourage you and give you direction and understanding, but also it should trouble you in that you know that you are not obeying it as God has called you to, and then be motivated you need to be motivated out of that trouble to be um, in the admission of God to be obedient to him. So let the Word of God bring comfort and let it bring trouble. Finally, verse seventeen. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. He also said the same thing in First Corinthians ten thirty one. So what whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You need we need to understand this whole aspect of the glory of God in our lives. Is as we were just talking this morning about Bo and Chelsea. Their glory that God has given to them is their son. And the glory that they will bring. Because this earth is as they teach him how to obey all things that Jesus taught. As they teach him to grow up to be, be a man of God, wherever he goes, people are going like, that Vincent is an amazing man. And it always points back to what mom and dad did. Whatever you do, you're to bring glory to it. Now here it is. You are chosen by God, and you are holy in His sight, and you are deeply loved. He loves you just the way you are, but He is so much in love with you that He is not willing to leave you the way you are. Therefore, He has given us the Holy Spirit and the virtues that that Paul says we're supposed to put on like garments and clothe ourselves out of the celestial closet, so that as we live our lives with the belt of truth wrapped around it, all these virtues play an important role of how we interact together as the church and then how we, as we go from here, as we gather and then as we scatter, that the virtues of Jesus go to every man, woman and child that we have contact with. You are God's children. He has given you everything you need in order to make a difference in our world. So put on the virtues. Trust God. Remember that you are holy. Holy regardless of what anybody says to you, regardless of the whisperings you hear in your ear, that you're not worthy, you're not, you're not holy, you're not a saint, you're not good enough, you can't do it, you keep screwing up, you keep doing this, blah, 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 blah. Forget that noise and trust what God has said about you because He's the author and perfecter of your faith. You are holy, set aside for His good use. Amen? Father, we thank You that You love us. And as we step into this time... communion, where we're going to get to gather around the table, Jesus, that you have provided for us, I just simply ask that our hearts would be in tune with you, and that we would hear your voice clearly, and that we would trust you with everything, and that you would be Lord and reign supreme over us, and that we would live as the way you see us, that we are chosen, and we are loved, and that we are holy. We love you because you've given us more than what we deserve. We pray in the great name, Jesus. Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 11,